All right, my name is Jordan, and as Kaylee said, Sunday is fun day. Uh, Graham was listening to his hype music before we came to church this morning. There's a song by, I think his name's Sean Henshaw, and the, the title of the song is Wake Up and Get Yourself to Church, and it is very much a wake-up song. So he was, uh, yeah, he was getting hyped for church this morning. So Sunday is fun day. Now, we also are teaching the book of Amos at church, so it's kind of a different type of fun. Um, <laughs> So let's acknowledge that. Uh, so the type of fun we're having this morning is in Amos 5 and 6. You can flip there. And it's about a funeral. So, all right, we're going there. Um, but Amos chapter 5, the, it, really the, the whole of chapter 5, which is where we're focusing the most, 5 and 6 function together, and chapter 6 starts to fill in some of the details of chapter 5, but in particular, verses 1 through 17, uh, there's something really important that the initial audience would have seen in this that we tend to miss, which is that this, what Amos is writing is a traditional funeral eulogy. So what do you do with a eulogy? You talk about the life of the deceased, which we'll talk about in a second who the deceased is in this example, but, but eulogies at funerals are always a celebration of someone's life. They're the things that they, that they did that were good and beneficial, right? You talk about all these, these memories that you had with them and um, kind of the, the good type of person that they were, but it's not always true when you're at a funeral that the person in the casket was a good person. But if you've ever had that experience, uh, the eulogy still sort of, I mean, makes things up if they have to or spins things about their life to try to make it sound a little bit better because, which, which is awkward for the people in the audience, but apparently it's um, a little bit less awkward for people than saying what is true. But I want you to imagine that you went to a funeral and, and the person in the funeral, it was kind of that example. They didn't actually live a good life, and they were awful to people. And the brother of that person walked up on stage and started to eulogize his brother and said, my brother was awful and honestly ruined a lot of our lives, and here's a list of the things that he did wrong. Uh, it'd be a very memorable funeral, right? You would not forget that for the rest of your life. So that's what Amos is doing. And maybe equally as shocking as the type of eulogy that he's giving is who the deceased is. The deceased in this funeral is Israel, the people of God, supposedly the chosen nation of God, the people that were supposed to represent him and have eternal life in him, Amos is declaring them dead. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. Fallen no more to rise as the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. So I just want you to picture this scene. Amos is a shepherd who rolls into the religious power centers of Israel, gathers himself up a crowd and sets up a traditional funeral and starts going through this liturgy of a funeral that they would have recognized 
And then as he's going through this funeral service and they're trying to figure out what's going on and he's, he's kind of talking bad about the dead person, they realize that they are the ones that are dead. I mean, that is an incredibly shocking scene. So the question is, is why is he using this, this really intense language, such a visceral example that would have been so memorable for them? Well, because it's the tendency of religious people to assume that they're alive when they're dead. And I think what Amos is doing here is he's warning them of the coming physical judgment. It's a judgment that, that happened, is they were exiled, they were attacked by an evading country, uh, uh, most of them died, and a lot of them were led out of their homeland into exile. And he is absolutely talking about that, but I think he's also talking about something more central, the spiritual condition of the people of God. And he's saying there's no pulse. You're dead. And he needed that shocking language because as religious people, it was their tendency to assume that they were in grace, that they were alive, that they were the chosen people, and that they were fine. How about you? Have you just assumed that because you grew up in church, or maybe you've got some conversion story from when you were a kid, or because you attend a connection group here that that you're, that you're fine, that you're alive? Do you have a tendency when there's hard messages like this in scripture and preached from stage to, to think about the people next to you that need to hear this but excuse yourself from it? Because if it's true, which I think Amos is arguing, that it's easy for hyper-religious people to believe they're alive than, than that they're dead in this group of religious people who have said we are religious, we're church attenders, then it must be true that there's people in this room or people online or both that believe that you're alive, but you're dead. You don't have a spiritual pulse. You don't have life with God. You've missed it. You've, you've named yourself Christian, but don't actually understand what it is to be Christian. And so how these chapters function primarily is what's known as a woe oracle, or oracle, excuse me. Primarily, this comes in three parts. First, the warning, then the charges, then the consequences. So the warning is what we just talked about. It's, it's that he's setting up this funeral, and the warning is, hey, you think you're alive and you're safe and you're fine, but you're actually dead. So let's get on to this second part of this section, the charges. So in other words, Amos is, is going to bring... The, the case against the Israelites for why they are dead and why there is judgment coming against them so that it's unquestionable that it is just that they are receiving judgment. He's going to clearly lay out the accusations against them that land. And so what are the charges? What are the accusations? Why are they in trouble? Well, first it's that they were living a self-indulgent life leading to injustice and then secondly, that they were covering up their injustice with religion. So let's look at this. Chapter 5, verse 7. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Okay, so, so wormwood, just translate that into bitter. 
It's a bitter herb that tastes disgusting, right? And so, so he's saying that they're, they're taking something that was supposed to be sweet like justice, justice being the character of God, his goodness flowing down onto earth, righteousness, the, the right way of life. Justice was supposed to be how they lived in order to represent God, and they've taken that thing that's sweet like honey, and they've turned it into bitterness by living unjust lives, and they've cast down righteousness to the earth. They've made the sweet aspects of the character of God into the disgusting aspects of evil and sin that is opposed to God, and they've done it all in the name of God. How have they done this? Jump over to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So they're eating lamb. They're eating lamb and, and veal. They're, they're drinking wine, not by the glass, but by the pitcher. They're, they're throwing themselves these, these parties, right? They're, they're living it up. They're living the dream. They're, they're enjoying their life. And they had turned the main purpose of life into seeking their own pleasure and their own satisfaction. To fulfill whatever desire they had is, is what they're living for. The good life in their mind was the life of indulgence. And you understand that this is absolutely the American way of life. That this is the instincts of our culture. This is what advertising is. Is there's a craving, and once you receive that craving for whatever it is that you want, you initially or you immediately try to satisfy that craving through indulging that pleasure, whatever that pleasure is. And, and American advertising and culture runs off of this idea that you can find happiness through self-indulgence. And so it produces cravings in you that you didn't even know that you had or didn't even know that you wanted so that you will pursue them. But the interesting thing is, if that was true, that if you indulge your desires, you become happy, wouldn't at some point we have enough and be happy? But the cycle is endless because it doesn't actually work. And so you can keep feeding into that cycle because you don't actually find satisfaction in the indulgence of that craving. And so then you crave something else and you pursue that thinking that maybe this time you'll find what you're looking for. And the problem with that is, is you become like a black hole where you suck everything in life around you into you. You consume everything and it becomes this self-dominated life. And it's the baseline existence of at least some American Christians, and I suspect the majority of American Christians. Obviously, that's hard to quantify or define, but I suspect that that is the baseline instincts, not just of the world, but of the church. And there's, there's sins that we talk a lot about, that we confess a lot, but it, but this, this sin of indulgence and greed isn't one that I hear coming out of your mouths very often. It's not one I hear coming out of my own mouth very often. We tend to overlook it. It's a, it's a cultural blind spot in our culture and in our church culture. How much of your life is spent thinking about, 
defending and trying to please you. Like if you had to put a percentage on the amount of your time is consumed with you, what would that percentage be? Because that's exactly the opposite of this beautiful life that scripture lays out for us. An others-oriented life, a giving life as opposed to a taking life. But, but when self-indulgence is sort of the default of your life, it's hard to even see what it's doing to you or what it's doing to the people around you. So I had the opportunity to go on a cruise when I was in high school with my family. So we didn't take a ton of vacations growing up, and so this was like a big deal. There was a lot of buildup towards it. And so we went through uh, a cruise in the Caribbean. And if you guys have been on a cruise, I mean, these things are amazing. There's like as much food as you want everywhere. There's entertainment everywhere. You can do the excursions. So I did an excursion where I got to ride a jet ski through the Caribbean where the water was so clear that it didn't even matter how deep it was. You could see all the way to the bottom. It was perfect through the entire trip. We just kind of laid out, did whatever we wanted, and I hated it. (laughs) Guys, I was a teenager I was a dumb teenager. Not all, not all teenagers are dumb, but I was one of them. And, and as being this like angsty te- teenager that I was, I was sitting literally in paradise, frustrated that I didn't have cell phone reception and missing my girlfriend and annoyed that I was with my family. Sorry, mom, if you're watching this. Um, and, like, frustrated that there wasn't more stuff for teenagers to do or whatever. Like, I, I, I literally spent this whole trip in paradise thinking about what was wrong. When you pursue self-indulgence as a lifestyle, that's what happens. Is you can have the greatest set of circumstances and all you'll be able to do is look at what's wrong. And guess what? It not only ruined my experience, but it started to ruin the whole experience of my family because I was just being a punk and it was all about me and and I wasn't having fun and they could tell that and so it started to ruin their experience as well. God is inviting you to a better life. A life where you're not just this this black hole of consumption of what you want where you can find satisfaction in him and then start to live a life of giving, an outward-oriented life, which not only is a better life for you, but will be a better life for the people around you. But they were living self-indulgently in this this flippant way, like verse 6, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. See, the self-indulgence had blinded them to the reality of what was happening, that, that they were fighting with God. They weren't on God's side, but they were blinded to it. And so they were walking through life in kind of this flippant, party-style way, just trying to have fun, but they weren't settling into the weighty realities of eternity. How easy is that to do? Like, life is hard, let's just have fun. Let's just have a good time. Let's party a little bit. Let's just enjoy our weekend, but, but not really realize the, the weightiness of the type of thing that we're talking about with eternity. And their indulgence led to injustice, particularly towards the poor and the vulnerable in society. Look at chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. 
They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. And you have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many of you are transgressors, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gates. Their indulgent lifestyle, they needed it so badly that they were willing to use whatever means necessary to oppress the poor and vulnerable in their society. Now, it seems like likely what was happening is that the rich were using the court systems for their own benefit to take even more from the poor. And so they were oppressing the poor among them. Now, you might be thinking, I don't oppress the poor. Like trampling on the poor, that's not something that I do. Now, that very well might be true in the same sense that they were trampling on the poor. But this was something that uh, our elders brought up this week that was really helpful for me. But before we, we preach, we walk, this, we walk through our sermon and the text with our elders. And what they brought up is, is for them, trampling on the poor um, might not look like the external oppression of the poor, but it might look like not being aware of the needs of people, disengaging from the needs of people who maybe um, don't have everything that they have. That, that the oppression of the poor might actually not be specifically their activity, but it might be their inactivity, their blindness, their ignorance to the needs of people in their life, to their neighbors or to people in our city. So we talk a lot about the, the sins that we commit, sins of commission, but sometimes we can forget about sins of omission, the things that we should be doing as Christ followers to represent his good character to the world, but that we're not doing. See, God is interested in the display of his self-sacrificial love to this world so that people would know about his goodness and would want to follow him through the way that you and I live. That's his, his design, is by the, the power of his spirit in us that we would live out his character. And the essential nature of Christianity is the rejection of self-indulgence and the pursuit of your own happiness for a self-sacrificial love of other people based on the self-sacrificial, of lo of self-sacrificial love of Christ for you. It's, it's the systematic and intentional giving of yourself to make this place look more like the kingdom of God on earth. And they weren't doing it. It wasn't even on their radar. Is it on yours? Like practically, actually, not theoretically. Like how you live. Have you started to leverage your life for the benefit of other people? And what made this worse then, and I think what can make it worse now, is that they tried to cover up that lack of self-giving love with religiosity. Look at chapter 5 again, verses 21 through 23. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. 
Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. So he's talking about their church services. And he's saying, your worship music is annoying to me. Stop singing it. Why? Well, I think there's an important key in here. There's a repeated word that you'll see over and over again in this text that seems a little bit odd at first glance, and it's the word gate. He says the word gate or meaning city gate in verse 10, in verse 12, and in verse 15. And so what's he talking about here with the gate? Well, the gate was this place where official business was done. At, at times, it's where um, trials would be held. And so I think he is somewhat here talking about the um, systematic injustice that was being that was occurring towards poor people in Israel. But I think he's also talking about something a little bit broader than that. The city gate obviously represented the city. It's the welcome point of the city. And so I think he's using this as an expression to talk about the city. So he's comparing and contrasting their behavior in church with their behavior in the city. And he's saying, I'm frustrated by your religious sacrifices and your religious show because you're not living out my character day to day. Your Sundays, you're doing this thing, but Monday through Saturday, you're living completely differently. And because of the way you live Monday through Saturday, it makes the Sunday thing offensive to me because I see through it. Translation for us, church and city. Church and city. Who, who cares about your worship songs if you're not living by his grace in his character throughout the week? Christianity is not a once-a-week event. It's not a twice-a-week event if you throw in connection group. It's, it's a character. It's a, it's a lifestyle. When Jesus was asked to describe and summarize the, the teaching of the word of God. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He gave two, not one. Why? Because the two are inseparable. The primary means by which you love the Lord your God is through loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's saying. And so as Christians, as we gather together in this church, we also have to be people who go out to love our city. So I just want to, I want to talk to you for a second if, if you're not a Christian, um, it, or, or maybe you're, you're not sure, you're, you're trying to decide for sure if you're in or out on this Christianity thing, or maybe you call yourself a Christian, but you're a little skeptical of some things you've seen within organized religion. First off, thanks so much for being here. We're glad you're here. You can keep coming. We love it that you're here. One of the objections that I've heard, objections to Christianity that I've heard from a lot of you is this critique of the church, that the church lacks social concern, that there's a lack of care for the poor, that there's an uninvolvement, a, a disinterest in what's going on in the world or what's happening in the city. There's the critique that we've all heard of religious hypocrisy, that there's this way that you act when you show up at church, you kind of get your act together, but you're a totally different person outside of it. 
and you ha- you've had that critique for a long time of Christianity, and that might feel like a modern critique of the church, but I actually want you to know it's an ancient one. That critique is here in the book of Amos, written thousands of years ago, and it's not actually a critique from humans towards God. It's a critique from God towards humans. Th- this was God's critique of the church. He-, he wants us to live differently than that. He wants us to use our time, our energy, our resources to be a benefit and a blessing to other people in our life. Practically, not theoretically, not talk about it, not discuss it, do it. That's what God wants is love of neighbor. Now, I don't think that I have done a good job historically in my own life of understanding the deep connection between the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, and the gospel applied through neighbor love. And I'm sorry for that. I feel convicted by the last three teaching series that we've done. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the book of James, and now Amos that are all talking about this very practical religion of love. And and obviously, okay, I, I have understood that we need to love people as Christians, and I have tried to give my life to that, but I don't think I've appreciated the fullness of the biblical picture in this. And so I don't think I've always led well in that area. And, And I'm sorry for that. And I really do want to be different. And I think there's ways that that our church is growing in this area and has needed to grow in just practical, practical, tangible service in our city. But I also want you to see that the church is not primarily uh, an organization or an event. It's, it's a group of people. <laughs> the, the primary illustration for the church is the body of Christ, that, that you all play this very distinct role in the church, and then collectively we live out the character of Jesus on earth in our city. And so what, what I don't want you to do is either say, okay, our church is starting to do some more stuff in our city now, so I'm good kind of by affiliation. No, jump in on that. Like, God gave you gifts. You don't have to be sidelined. Like, he, he really can use you and wants to use you. And I also don't want you to kind of look at the church as an organization and say, well, the church isn't doing enough. No, we're, we're trying primarily to jump on board with what you guys are already doing and what you're passionate about and what you're gifted in. And you guys are doing it, and I'm really thankful for that. And so I just want to say, like, keep going. And some of the things we've been able to do is just members of Salt City Church that have just said, this is something that I care about. It's a problem in our city I'm trying to solve. That's how we've gotten involved with Humanity Alliance is because Sammy cared about it and her dad cared about it. And we want to jump on board with that. I know some of you are uh, mentors for kids in our city. Keep going. More of you jump in on that. Uh, Tony's been able to lead some stuff up with Union Gospel Mission that's been really cool. And, And some of you that are here today are from Union Gospel Mission. Thanks so much for being here. We love that. We want to serve you. We want to bless you as a community. Some of you guys should jump in on that. If you have a passion, something that you, that you care about, go do it. And we want to support you as you go out as the church. And primarily, we actually want to do that through our connection groups. So, so connection groups and connection group leaders, find something that you guys as a group, I think it's, it's a way that you can do something together, but it's not also this, this huge room like this that's a little unwieldy to figure out what to do together. So you do as a connection group, find a place that you want to bless and benefit our city. 
and, and just own that together as a group. Go do it. Now, don't bail on connection groups all the time, okay? Like, keep doing connection groups. Maybe do that in addition or, like, once a month or something like that. But that is our primary strategy is looking at you guys as connection groups and saying, go love our city with how God has gifted you and blessed you, and we want to support you in that. Okay, come back. The summary of the verdict against them is that they weren't living lives of justice, they weren't living lives of love towards their neighbor, and that they were trying to cover that up with a religious show. So that's the verdict. So what was coming because of that verdict, because of that warning? What are the consequences if that goes unchecked? Well, in chapter 6, verse 7, the way I would summarize this is the first will be first. Okay? Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The people who spent their lives making themselves first were the first ones to enter judgment. That's what this is saying. Jesus talked about the last being first in the kingdom of God, but those who elevate themselves, make themselves first, or attempt to make themselves first in this life, that is their kingdom, but they also will be first to receive judgment because of that life. And that's hard for us, right? Think about um, a kid when they're being disciplined by their parent. They did something wrong, and so their parent disciplines them. And the kid almost inevitably is convinced that their mom or dad is just mean and hates them. Right? Like, it's always the parent's fault. Why? Because the kid is convinced that they're innocent. Or making excuses for what they did wrong. And maybe if you came in as just an observer and you hadn't seen what the child had done first and you only saw the discipline, maybe you would think that that parent was a little mean or something like that. But here's what we know is the parent is actually acting in love towards the child because the child had done something wrong and needed to be corrected. We so often, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to God's hatred of sin can blame and accuse God like it's his fault without acknowledging that we are the ones who are guilty. But we cannot cast judgment on the judgment of God. We don't have the power to do that. Look at chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turned deep darkness into the morning and darkness and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. God is powerful. He tells the sun when to rise and when to set. He is the judge of the earth. It is not wise to question him. Agree with him on his assessment about you in the world and repent. Come back to him. That's what we do when we're confronted with the reality of our situation. And in that, there's good news. Look at chapter 5, verses 5, and in verse 6, he repeats the same thing. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. 
if you turn back to him, if you seek him, you will find him. And I love specifically that it says lives because this comes in the context where he has just gotten done with this funeral. In fact, it's still kind of in the middle of the funeral liturgy. Amos looks out at the crowd and says, even though you're dead, you can be alive. Which doesn't make any sense at first glance, but that is the heartbeat of Christianity. The heartbeat of Christianity is resurrection. That, that Jesus Christ died, he, he experienced death and what it was like to put on death and then came back to life because in him experiencing death, now we in him can experience life. He identifies with our death so that we can identify with his life. It's not just that he rose from the dead, although that's the most remarkable truth in the history of the world. It's that you can rise from death in him. You can have new spiritual life in him. He's calling out to you, and if you turn around and seek the Lord, you can live. It's like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. This religious person who thought he was in with God and Jesus exposes that he's not actually uh, with God. He doesn't have a relationship with God. And what does he have to do? He needs to be born again. He needs to receive a supernatural life that he didn't have before. And what will happen when we can receive that life? Verse 14, seek good and not evil. You will actually be able to do that by the grace of God. You can seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. The inevitable result of genuine seeking is that you will find God. He will be with you. That's what he promises here. And one of the themes of Amos is that we are at war with God. All over the book, there's this imagery of how the people of God who thought that they were on God's side are actually fighting with him. And he says in our text, not to anticipate the day of the Lord because it won't be a good day for you because you're not actually on the side of justice. You're not on God's side. You're warring with him. But what this is saying is that if you turn around, if you seek God, not only do you not have to be a prisoner of war, but you can enter into God's kingdom. You can become a citizen of God's country. You, you, can, you can be a part of his kingship. You can be on his side. And he wants that transition to happen in your life. Total changing of sides, going from fighting with God to being with God. And what is his country like? Verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Would you imagine with me for a second what that would be like if that was true? Yes, justice can be terrifying if you're standing against it. But justice and righteousness means the character of God coming to earth. It means goodness rolling down onto this world. In one of our formation small groups the other day, we just took time to reflect and imagine what would it be like if the kingdom of God came to earth, if the Sermon on the Mount was lived out in reality on this planet. Think about that. If people were never angry, if they never lusted, if they never took advantage of each other, if the default of the human heart was love, self-sacrificial, servant-hearted love, where the only competition would be that you're propping each other up. You you guys remember some good news from John Krasinski? That would be the only news that existed just all the time. 
That's what the kingdom of God would be like. That's the country that he's inviting you into. That's the life that he wants for you. By his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, start to come into that life in him. And that that dream of the kingdom, here's what it does, is it convicts us. Because it's different from the world we're living in now. It's a different way of life than the one that we're living now. But it also gives us a vision for what our lives could be in him. Imperfectly, yes, but more and more true in him. And then one day in heaven, fully true forever with him. A vision for life. Conviction, a vision for life. But then it also gives us hope. That the world will not always be like this. That God will not always have to be angry with sin because sin will be eradicated from the earth. And God will make everything good and justice and righteousness will roll down like a river and it will flood this earth and we can be a part of it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray for conviction. Convict me in the ways that, that I'm not living like that, that I'm falling short in leading our church like that. Convict our church of the ways that we're not living in your kingdom. But we do pray for conviction, not condemnation. And I, I pray for, for anyone in this room, anyone watching online, whatever, that that if there's genuine repentance, a genuine seeking of you, that you would give them assurance that they will see the day when righteousness comes onto this earth like a flood in you. That that you are for them, not against them. And God, because you're for us, help us to live like your people. Let us live out your character on the earth. Let us love our city. God, we believe in the centrality of the gospel message, the message about Jesus Christ, that you lived, you died, and you rose again so that we can be saved and experience eternal life. We believe that message is the heart of everything we do, including practical love of our neighbors. And so just, God, let us, let us grow as a church. Let us grow into your image. Help us to love our city and love each other and live like your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.